Hi, this is Caitlin McFarland. And this is Emily Gibson. And we're the co-founders of ATX Television Festival. And you're listening to the TV Campfire. Emily, it's Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving to you. We're not going to lie. We are not recording this on Thanksgiving. Uh, What? I'm just going to... Feel that you need to be honest That's true. and tell people because <laughs> since you don't know how podcasts work. Also, it wasn't the day before Thanksgiving. I'm not even going to say that. But because it's Thanksgiving, I'm looking into the future and I'm probably very full right now. What is your favorite Thanksgiving food? Mashed potatoes. And I don't get them every year. Nobody makes them. So I think I'm going to try and make them this year. That's weird. We get sweet potatoes, which I also enjoy, but oh, there's there's... Four different types of turkey, deep fried, not deep fried. Are your roasted. sweet potatoes with marshmallows on top? Some of them are, and but sometimes they have like I think both marshmallows and pecans. Oh, it's a good texture. I, I won't lie. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I've only had the pecans on top at restaurants, mm-hmm. but that the homemade ones that I sometimes get have I definitely have marshmallows, yeah, yeah. but just not with pecans, and yeah. I deeply love them i do too but now thinking about it that's a weird like who did that first i don't no idea who decided to put candy on top of sweet potatoes which are already sweet let's be Someone honest really smart yeah did that what's your favorite thanksgiving oh <laughs> sorry <laughs> sorry, what? sorry. It's the, I didn't mean to laugh that hard. It's not that funny because it's totally great. But I just thought about where your Thanksgiving meal comes from, <laughs> and then uh, it's it's one of two places. If, it if is, I'm correct, it is. So just like slight history without boring <laughs> the world. My Thanksgiving has decreased in size significantly over the number of years. Family members moving away sister had to go and get married and have two perfect daughters but they do her they do thanksgiving with her Mm in-laws you know my as you listened my grandfather's no longer with us my aunt and uncle have been traveling for thanksgiving but now they may be coming back because cousins have moved so i honestly it's going to be a surprise for all of us that i don't really know who is coming to thanksgiving today regardless of how many people are there well the reason that it this has happened is since the past few years, it has been a very small amount of people, and I got the gene from my mother that we don't cook yeah. or enjoy cooking. Thanksgiving either comes from Luby's or Cracker Barrel, mm-hmm. and it comes in a box, and then we put it in real dishes oh, and job. heat it up. Didn't know that part. Well, I've depends seen on how many people are coming. <laughs> I, I've seen the picture of the box. <laughs> I do uh, often post the picture on social media of the box arriving at the oh, house. Oh, we should do it. You should, you're going to need, if it happens this year, oh. you're going to need to do that on the ATX oh, and we're going to yes. hashtag this episode. So, great. Great. So alert. go. It will happen in some sort this year. Mm-hmm. I will post. Okay. What go else? to our social media right now. Nope. Nope. Depending on what time you're listening to In this. the next By 12 the hours. today, go to our social media and you will see where our Thanksgiving meal came from yeah it's i'll be post really mine exciting. too i'll post a picture of the fried chicken because they do deep fried chickens and deep fried like yeah like not you know like 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 a big deep fryer like it's dangerous it's dangerous guys <laughs> nobody do this at home people blow up themselves up in garages my family has not done it yet but mine will be the second one because the lead will be the box of food and if it's lubies or cracker barrel yes i will say my favorite thanksgiving yes. in recent history though was 
we actually went to Luby's oh, to eat Thanksgiving. I didn't know they were um, on Thanksgiving. Yeah, they do. They have a big Thanksgiving meal buffet. So we actually went there with my grandparents. My friend Karen was in town. And we <laughs> ate there. And then my parents, Karen and I, went to – so I live in North Texas, right – on the border, we went across the border to the to casino. Oklahoma, to, not the. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it sorry, is north, it is, but yes, just I'm the so border. Sorry. Yes, the state border. The state border up to Oklahoma and went to the casino, and it was like a delightful Thanksgiving. That's awesome. It because sounds great. We don't really care about NFL football. We care about college football, yeah. and there's not really college football games on Thanksgiving not anymore. anymore. I know, which is very disappointing. I mean, maybe good for them. I know what else. But, yes, so that was my favorite Thanksgiving in recent years. So, you know what? I'm going to let you know what happens this year. Nice. Well, along the Thanksgiving and things that we are thankful (laughs) for, I'm going to transition this very awkwardly. very not great transition. It's not a great transition, except for the fact that... The panel that we're releasing today is with on our syndication project track at the festival. It was called Fact, Fiction, and Criminal Justice, presented by the ACLU. And this may sound like a stretch, but I don't think it is that all of the work that ACLU is doing is a very, like, keeping people together and, like, you know, it's very, keeping like, families, families bringing together. families back together. Exactly. Yep. And what is today? It is a family together holiday. Nice. Nice I did twist. It. I nice. Put a Bring it in there. It. You totally did. But this panel has nothing to do with Thanksgiving, so moving on <laughs> other than that. But this is our second year working with the ACLU. Yes. And Marsha uh, Ziesman at the ACLU is phenomenal. And we love working with her. She's already pitching us ideas for next year. So stay tuned for that. But this one was one when we really talk about, I mean, the ACLU deals with so many issues that it's a, what is a current topic? And also what's being talked about on TV? Because I think the hard thing that we sometimes deal with, with working with the ACLU or any of our partners with the syndication project is there are many social issues that we want to talk about that unfortunately are not represented on TV. And so it's kind of hard to have Who a panel. Who <laughs> should be on that panel? It's hard to have a panel of showrunners, actors, <laughs> producers, executives talking about a topic that's not on TV and why it should be. Not that I'm against that, but this you one. see there's a light bulb above my head. Okay, good. You keep <laughs> thinking about it. Stay tuned for what that idea is going to be. But that this one was very much a what are shows that are happening right now that are really dealing with some of these issues. And The Red Line had just come out. Mm-hmm. So um, we had Sunil Nair. And Caitlin Parrish, the co-creators oh, and yep. EPs. And then Joanna Johnson, who was from The Fosters and now is uh, producing, showrunning, producing Good Trouble, which is The Fosters spinoff. Right. And we were supposed to have Anthony Sparks, who's the writer EP of Queen Sugar, but he wasn't able to make it. Yes. So it was like a great topic full of these people that are really doing great things in this space right now. And even Sunil has talked about the fact that he, some of his previous work that he's done, he didn't feel was making the type of impact that he wanted to make, which is amazing. And so he did the show The Red Line, which is phenomenal and if you missed it you should go watch it but it really is right along the lines with what the syndication project stands for which is the power of storytelling and the power of when you're watching these characters on tv and how much that really i mean seeps into your conscious and subconscious about how you're then viewing the world and i think there's a lot of misinformation out there on the criminal justice system and people can be very divided about it so i think that some of these shows do a great job of showing multiple sides of things so it's not just this is good this is bad it's like let's actually take this topic and look at it from different angles yeah through characters that we care about well because very rarely is something just good or bad (laughs) 
In fact, Agreed. I don't, think I don't ever... agree with you on a lot of things, but I agree with you on that. I think you agree with me on a lot uh, of 50, things. 50 50. Yeah, that's a lot. Okay, it's not fair. the majority. <laughs> it's still a lot. Fair. If you said you didn't agree with me on, like, whatever. What if it that's said 49? <laughs> 49, 50. Anyway, this is a, was a great topic, and it, as is all of our panels, it is a heavy topic, but it's not a downer of a panel, yeah. for lack of a better word. It is hope. a hopeful panel with a lot of hope coming out of it and a lot of amazing people talking about a subject that we care deeply about. So with that, we hope that you're having a happy Thanksgiving. And as you're sitting on your couch full thinking about leftovers, Mm -hmm. please listen and enjoy Fact Fiction and Criminal Justice presented by the ACLU, moderated by Twyla Carter, who is the senior staff attorney with the National ACLU's Criminal Law Reform Project. Good afternoon, everyone. As Emily said, my name is Twyla Carter. I'm a senior staff attorney with the Criminal Law Reform Project at the ACLU National Office in New York. Prior to working as a civil rights lawyer, I was a public defender for 10 years, most recently the misdemeanor practice director in Seattle and King County, Washington. So I'm very, very excited about moderating this panel today. We have a great group of people who are going to talk to you about the storylines and plot lines that depict real issues that we see in the criminal legal system. And first, without further ado, I'd like to introduce you to Caitlin Parrish. She's our co-creator, executive producer, and writer of The Red Line. Come on out, Caitlin. Also, Sunil Nair, co-showrunner and executive producer of The Red Line. And certainly last but not least, Joanna Johnson, creator, writer, executive producer of Good Trouble. So we'll certainly save some time at the end for your questions, but let's just jump right in. First question. Why did you all decide to feature episodes on the criminal justice system, the criminal legal system, as I call it, actually? Well, uh, the red lines inciting incident is when a black man is murdered by a white police officer. So the series is kind of about criminal justice. It was it was unavoidable. It was the mission statement of the show. We wanted to tell a story ironically, on a CBS platform, which is historically one of the widest networks, both behind the scenes and in the audience, um, that could hopefully be taken in by a predominantly white audience that maybe doesn't understand their own internal biases a lot, and then also reach an audience of people of color who, you know, rightly have been a little uh, excluded from CBS Fair. Um, So for us, it just, it was the whole point of doing the show. Uh, well, we started with uh, the Fosters, and that was um, largely about. Um, it was about a family that of uh, adopted uh, fo- and fostered children, and um, one biological child. And so, in if you get to talk about the foster care system, you have to talk about the justice system because in foster care, ninety um, percent of kids who have been in five or more placements will end up um, in prison. Um, And uh, it's kind of another pipeline to prison, as well as um, um, most foster kids by the time they're 17, at least half of them have had some sort of 
um, arrest or incarceration or gone to juvie um, or conviction. So uh, it was naturally part of the stories that we wanted to tell in our character of Callie. Um, we meet her just getting out of juvie, and she subsequently went back a couple of times. So that's how it started. And then with Good Trouble, you know, we wanted to continue talking about social justice and about the pipeline to prison, as well as, um, similarly, um, the excessive use of force by the police department and um, the racial bias. Um, and when when we were writing the pilot, Stefan Clark, the shooting of Stefan Clark had just happened, and it, I just felt like we have to keep talking about these things. And it, it's easy to be like, oh, another, another shooting of a black person, um, or a person of color, and it becomes sort of business as usual, just like all these mass shootings. And I think we have to, you know, really keep having these conversations and and really humanize and them and explain kind of the law to people who are watching and how much power the police really have in discerning whether someone is a threat um, and how difficult it is to get a DA to charge police in these shootings. And um, as far as in good trouble, the, the relief the family is trying to get is in federal court because no one brought any charges. And in federal court, court trying to sue um, for um, two things. One was um, excessive use of force and failure to provide critical care, which is something that I really have noticed in a lot of these. When you see these on television, you see someone shot, they just let them lay there. And it, it feels like the paramedics just take their time getting there. Um, and so I thought that was another issue to bring up. So long story. That's great. Thank you. Sunil, did you want to? And, and to, I think Joanna hit on something that I think is really important is that social justice is what we should be talking about uh, in a lot of ways. I think one of the reasons I think you're doing your show, which is wonderful, and we did the red line and a lot of other things are happening, is that when people hear the words criminal and justice, I think the connotations for many is that a criminal deserves justice, which is punishment. And frankly, I think the really important thing is to examine what we consider a person to be a criminal and what is justice for that human being. And I think that that's the lens through which I think we all want to start exploring these things because we're at a time now where the default is that these people are villains, these people are bad, these people should go away. And so it's really examining what the concept of justice is and trying to marry the ideas of social and criminal justice, which is a hard conversation to have, but is critical right now because you know, we're all living in this country that vilifies so many people based on who they want to be and who they are without context for their stories. And I think what we're all trying to do, and many other people, thank goodness, are trying to find the narratives and check the premise of the idea of what criminal justice means in the words themselves. So anyway, I thought you had And another thing about social justice and, and is that, you know, the de definition really is, is providing equal access to prosperity, opportunities, um, you know, and, 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 and freedom and wealth. And so our show is kind of about that overall too, is, is, is everyone should have the opportunity to pursue those things. And of course, the odds are stacked against people, whether it's um, racially or social economically, um, not everybody does have that opportunity to pursue their dreams in, in essence. 
Like I'll, I'll add one more thing. We worked, Caitlin and I, intimately with this group called Color of Change, who are remarkable human beings doing remarkable work. And they came, yeah. Um, and they opened our eyes, or my eyes, I won't speak for everybody else, but they came and they talked to us and they said, Perry Mason was like the number one show on television back in the day. And Perry Mason was a defense attorney. So his heroes were the people he was defending. And they said what happened over the course of time in the television world is the narrative became the prosecutors were the heroes, which by definition made the defendants the villains. And they said that's a subtle change that's happened over time, but it frames things in a way that we're presenting to a millions of people the idea that the defendant is the villain who requires punishment. Um, and so I think what we're all trying to do is to reframe it back to, you know, we're sort of trying to go back to Perry Mason and to see the person, not the crime, and to see the narrative, not the sentencing. So anyway, I just, I thought they had a brilliant point when they brought that up and I had never really consciously realized that. But when that sort of bell is rung, you realize we have to change the way we approach telling these stories. I think that's absolutely right. That's why I also refer to it as the criminal legal system, to your point, not the criminal justice system. And the Color of Change organization is phenomenal. Yeah. To that point, what other research did you all do? I certainly encourage all of you to look up more of what these fantastic panelists have done and the great work that they've done on other shows. But obviously, we're talking about Red Line and Good Trouble today. But what research did you all do besides working with Color of Change to help you come up with these episodes and these fantastic storylines for these shows? Um, well, I'm a former dramaturg and librarian, so I assigned homework assignments <laughs> the first week of the show. Um, you know, our show dealt a lot with an aldermanic election in Chicago, which is a very specific kind of city council race. We dealt with, you know, legal proceedings and what it is to be a cop, either a white cop or a cop of color in Chicago specifically. We were dealing with LGBTQ rights organizations in the show. So we basically talked to everyone. Um, we were really, uh, one of our produ executive producers, Ava DuVernay, hooked us up with Dr. Abdullah, one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter Los Angeles. And we were privileged enough to talk to people who have lost loved ones to police brutality, and they were generous with their experiences and their pain and their desire for the kinds of stories they'd like to see told about similar victims. Um, we also talked to a lot of CPD officers on either side of the line, current officers, former officers. Um, we had former lawyers in our writer's room. We, we basically talked to anyone who would talk to us. We talked to aldermen and chiefs of staff and, and just mm -hmm. anyone who would pick up the phone when we called about their area of expertise, we talked to because at the end of the day, I think authenticity when you're dealing with really sensitive subject matter is key. And there's only so much a writer's room can accomplish with their own experiential knowledge. Um, so I think just setting aside your ego immediately and saying, I'm not going to be responsible for getting everything right. We're not going to be responsible for getting everything right. Let's talk to people who actually know. So I, we, we just talked to everyone who would give us the time of day. Yeah. And, and to sort of add to that, I'm sorry, were you about to, um, is, you know, this, the red line and what Caitlin and, and her, her creative partner, Erica created was a very special thing. And they approached it with the way that, you know, I would wish everybody would approach their shows, but people don't have the time and often don't have like the wherewithal to do it. And part of what's great is the ACLU has created this organization called Storyline Partners, which is sort of a, you get to go to them to get the narratives and, and sort of like I, sadly, the red line did not get picked up for a second season. So it will exist as a elegant novel, um, that we got to put on TV, but I've rolled into this other show called All Rise on CBS, which again is sort of sneaking social justice into the network 
conversation about an L.A. courthouse. And, you know, what I did when we started the show was to impanel it, because staff writers oftentimes on writing staffs don't have a lot of agency. And it's very hard for them to have a voice in some writers' rooms. And so, you know, the big thing for me is to really empower that person to be the one who gives a shit. Um, and to go find the narratives and to make the calls and to make sure we're not just Googling an article. And so, you know, our room was basically hardwired with people who were going to do that anyway. But if the room isn't, I think it's incumbent upon those who are running the room to really... Um, make it a necessity to do more work when you're telling these stories as opposed to thinking you already understand them. Yeah, we've always relied heavily on consultants. And we work with GLAAD. We work with um, uh, Black Lives Matter. Patrice Cullors, who's one of the co-founders of BLM, is um, our consultant. And also now she's in our writer's room as a staff writer. What? Yeah. yeah. And, um, wow. yeah, <laughs> damn. And, um we we have a ACLU consultant. We have a legal aid consultant. Um, I talk on the phone to people all the time. I, I, I love to do research because, you know, there's fact is always much more interesting than fiction, um, and it just gets me excited. And and like and I think you know as writers, I, sometimes I get a little annoyed with writers because I'm like, there's an internet. You know, I used to go to the library and get on the microfiche, you know, and do all that shit. There's no excuse not to do your research. There's just absolutely no excuse. It's right there at your fingertips. Um, and I think it's very important to try to get these stories right. And were there specific areas of the criminal legal system that you wanted to avoid at all? Were there any areas that were off, off limits? Not really. Um, I mean, there were... Not really. I mean, and, and to CBS's credit, uh, we didn't receive a lot of pushback on the content we wanted to put on television. Um, no, we, we were, basically, if it was thorny and there was an opportunity to tell hopefully a nuanced story where there were a lot of shades of gray, that was the really interesting thing for us to attempt. You know, that, that was the most fun thing to try to do. So I, I can't, I mean, Sunil, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't really think there was something where we felt like we had to shy away. No, we're, the messier the better. Right. <laughs> so on that point, I guess I'll direct this question to, to Caitlin first. In the red line, what I love about the portrayal that you all did with, as you described, Harrison Brennan, black doctor, shot in the back, unarmed by a white rookie cop. And as we all know in the news, when we see these storylines in real life, it's usually a, an unarmed black person or a person of color, mm -hmm. and the media will find a way to find even an arrest back from when they were juvenile. There's something negative that they use to portray the victim. And the officer is usually someone who's experienced. In the red line, it was an interesting twist that I appreciated where you have this black doctor and you have this rookie white cop. Why did you all choose to take that angle? Well, now that we've not been renewed, I can be a bit more frank and say <laughs> that, <laughs> um, and say that a, a, large, a large part of that decision, and my creative partner, Erica Weiss, uh, who couldn't be here today, um, and I've been working on this story for about 10 years. It was based on a play we created in Chicago called A Twist of Water. Um, when we realized that CBS was gonna make the show, our first conversation was, okay, how can we Trojan horse as much shit as humanly possible mm -hmm. for this, the audience we know tunes into CBS, which is predominantly old, predominantly white, and, you know, just statistically more inclined to disregard the news or turn something off because it doesn't subscribe to a particular narrative that they're familiar with. So we wanted to come up 
with a hook into the story that couldn't be inherently dismissed, where, you know, a predominantly white audience couldn't go, oh, well, of course it would have happened that way. Um, While also, you know, creating two characters, this doctor and this police officer, who were more than met the eye initially. You know, the, the shooting is the teaser of the pilot. Um, we see the last night of Harrison Brennan's life leading up to his death. And we only meet Paul Evans, the cop, as he's murdering Harrison. And then the rest of the show delves into both of them and their families in the aftermath. Um, but we, we wanted two Trojan horse characters who would get people in who might not otherwise tune into the content and get a network that might not otherwise air the content invested in these people. So, you know, other than that, we just, we thought they were cool characters on top of everything else and were interested in their lives. You know, you never see, I have yet to see in the media the story of the gay black man gunned down by police and what his husband and children might deal with in the aftermath. So that was also a really interesting opportunity creatively. And just let me ask a follow-up question to that point. Sure. It is interesting in, a, in another great twist, I think, that you did have Harrison Brennan married to a white man versus Harrison Brennan, the black professional who is married to a black woman. Mm-hmm. What was the choice behind? Again, it's more Trojan horse. It's, right. okay. you know, frankly, a CBS audience is going to be more inclined to get behind a gay male protagonist if he's played by Dr. Carter from ER. I, right. and, and to Noah Wiley's credit, he's an incredible actor and a wonderful collaborator. And he was on board with the mission from, from step one. And he was very explicit about what his presence in the American consciousness could bring in terms of welcoming people in. Um, you know, most, a lot of the decisions we made with the pilot specifically were about how do we get people to stay past the horror and to not dismiss people that they might not be familiar with from their own lives. That's great. Thank you. Sunil, is there anything you wanted to add? Or how did you, as the co-showrunner, decide yeah, I mean, to kind of I mean, everything material? Caitlin, yeah, I mean, I love everything Caitlin is saying. And that's what really drew me to want to be a part of this show was just the consideration that was taken in the fabric of why the show existed and the reason that they wanted to put this thing on television. So all I can say is... Thanks, because I love it. <laughs> and Joanna, definitely, for the good trouble. Love that show as well. Love the realism of the legal analysis, the legal terms. Love the fact that Callie is this law clerk who comes from a state law school. You show behind the scenes of what it's like. And again, when you have a plot line where you have the shooting of a black young man, white police officer, but for the first time that I've seen real in-depth analysis of what happens in chambers when you have the federal judge who's now looking at this case and seeing the discussions that were taking place on talking about the legal arguments on both sides. What was the thought process behind taking that perspective? Uh, Well, we had a character in Cali who'd gone to law school, and I thought it would be very interesting. Um, The typical, what you would expect is that she would go straight to ACLU or, or to legal aid, but I like the idea that of her pursuing a clerkship. It was a relationship I haven't seen on TV much. Right. Um, right. And I remember back, I, there, many years, I'm dating myself, but there was a show called Paper Chase. It was, I think, oh, a movie intro show. Nice. And I loved the, I loved the, the relationship between um, a sort of older mentor and a, and a young person trying to learn. And I thought that would be a great dynamic for Callie, and especially if she clerked for a conservative judge. Mm-hmm. And... And I thought they would spar quite a bit. And um, 
I also th- think it's, inter- it's important to look at bias, judicial bias, mm-hmm. and um, especially now that we're stacking the courts with conservative judges and how political our judicial system has come, how partisan, um, and how she says to the judge um, at one point, I don't think it's aired yet, but she said, you know, there's no such thing as a um, neutral judge, you know, on either side. And you interpret president precedents not because you have to interpret it in a conservative manner. You interpret it that way because you want to. Um, and I just thought that was exploring that is an interesting aspect as well. And it just made a great conundrum and conflict for Callie. And, um, and I think one thing we wanted to do by having Jamal Thompson, who's the name of the character who shot on our show, is also that, um, is that it shouldn't be that you only deserve justice if you have a pristine background in life. And um, we also, last season, Jamal had did some, we did this also based on the Stefan Clark's story, but, you know, that these tweets came out of that where he was kind of dissing black women. And the point we wanted to make is that everyone deserves justice and everyone's life matters. But when it comes to a lot of the bias against these black men and women who are being killed is that, well, you know, they weren't perfect. So, um, they get dismissed. And I think that's why Patrice and her co-founders came up with Black Lives Matter. They're not trying to say not all lives matter, but not all lives are at risk of of police brutality. And so that was something important as well, is to say, you know, even if the kid had been arrested at some point, doesn't mean that his life is not important. That's absolutely right. Yeah, what, and help me, maybe, what was it back Black Lives Matter said to us? That it's three murders, right? They murder the person, then they murder their character, mm-hmm. and then they murder the community. Yeah. And basically they said, so every killing is actually a three, three levels of murder of a community, and it was really, that's exactly what we're all trying to fight, basically. That's absolutely right. I would also add to Joanna's earlier point, one out of six federal judges now is a Trump appointee, so I'll let that sit there. So is it ever okay to stretch the truth for TV? Why or why not? I don't think you should stress the truth. I, I think you, we definitely dramatize things and we definitely look for conflict. And, um, but I, I, I don't think you want to put something out there that isn't valid or can't be substantiated in some way, in my opinion. I think there's a difference between authenticity and complete accuracy. I know we definitely compressed the timeline of when certain events would occur in the course of a a civil lawsuit in the wake of a a police murder um, for the sake of the fact that we had eight episodes to get the story done and we didn't know if we were going to get a second season. We were told we were a limited event series. So to get through the entirety 
of the process of a civil lawsuit, which can stretch on for years over the course of a couple of months, was a license we decided was okay. And, you know, I'll, I'll fully admit it was because we had former lawyers in the room who were like, eh, no law, law shows are correct anyway. So, um, uh, but I think within that compressed timeline, as long as the events that occur hold true to what statistically happens in life and what is true experientially, I'm okay with the licenses saying, eh, it was three months as opposed to 18 months. That's, that's about the limit of my being okay with stretching. Was there any pushback that either show received, say, from law enforcement community, from court system, from community? I'm not aware, I'm not really aware of any, but, um, uh, I mean, there are people on Twitter, you know, who will, you know, say things. But, I mean, Freeform has been incredibly supportive of letting us do this show and push things as far as we want to go. And the Disney company as well. One thing I will say is they don't like us to say the LAPD in our show. They, we can, everyone knows what we're talking about, but they don't really like it when we do that. Um, I would think that's the only limitations that they've given us. And that's interesting as well to that point and also, Caitlin, to not receive any pushback as well because I think the way that the law enforcement is portrayed especially. Yes, we say CPD on the show. We say Chicago Police Department constantly. Um, and there's a difference between no pushback and um, in as far as they allowed us to do it but that does not mean that process was easy or simple. Um, because, you know, CBS at the time, all the creative executives were white. And we're dealing with a very inclusive ensemble and a lot of different kinds of experiences and stories. And there was not always a common vocabulary or understanding in terms of what was correct or authentic or offensive. And I think, you know, there, Yes, there was no pushback. They let us do it, but that does not mean they let us do it without a fight. Um, and in terms of from the community, uh, we were pretty lucky. We had a lot of support from most people in Chicago, which was something we really cared about. We wanted Chicagoans to feel like we got it right. There, there was a little, I don't know, some comments on a police blog run by the CPD in Chicago talking about how we were just liberals who were going to call them all racists, but that's kind of par for the course. So I don't, I don't really consider that pushback. Fair. So we talked a little about, a bit about the racial tension that exists in both shows. What were the discussions around how to portray that on television and, and to be delicate or not go straight into it the way that you did? Or, or could you speak a little bit to what those conversations may have been like or what that thought process was? I mean, I think one thing that's really important is that you have a diverse and representative room. Yeah and that everybody feels like we can have these conversations in the room that are uncomfortable and that um and share our points of view because there would at, at times be i don't know racial tension in our room but definitely a learning curve for all of us to say you know and um and there was a writer on our show who said to me well when we were talking about Malik our character of Malika she's she said, a woman of color, and she said, um, you know, why, do I, why is it my responsibility to explain racism to, to white people? 
you know, go read a book. And I was like, great, let's have, let's have Malika say that to D Davia, you know. Um, and so I think you have to show and earth this. And I'm very interested in showing how people, you know, there's a book it, it, that I think is brilliant and I think every person should read it, but especially every white person. And it's called White Fragility and Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Race. And it's written by Robin DiAngelo. And it'll, it really blew my mind and it made me realize that the, the, my own biases, um, and, I think sometimes sort of white liberal people can be the worst because, you know, it's true. I mean, because, you know, I'm not racist. I would never do that, you know. And But then you're like, you don't realize some of these biases that you might have, you know, you could be like, for instance, you know, I'm not, I'm not racist. And then, you know, you see a black man get out of a, an expensive car and you think, hmm. Music or drugs? I mean, you know, in your mind, you go there or something. He must be in the music business or he must be a drug dealer. You know, you never think, you don't necessarily go to doctor first because that's not what, what is being portrayed in the media, on television. You're not seeing those stories, especially, and this is one thing about stories with black characters, often is about the trauma of the lives. It's about the criminal life. It's not about... um the the many 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 people of color who are are thriving and doing very well and 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 are middle class and you know and and I think another problem with that is that we live in a very segregated way you know we our our neighborhoods and our communities are often segregated so so you don't some for some people the only you know people of color or gay people or LGBTQ people they know are the characters on television so that was a long-winded way to get around to, I think we have to talk about racial tensions. We need to talk about it. We, people should make, feel free to make mistakes. Say, you can't say that. Um, there was an interesting thing that happened in our writer's room. I was talking about the Black Bachelorette. Yes, I watched the show. <laughs> um, I don't watch reality TV, but I love that show, and I, it just sucks me in every time. So, and I said in the room, you know, that she was a lawyer... And she's really um, articulate and well-spoken. And one of our black writers flinched and said to me, you know, but she didn't want to say anything to me. And so later I, I was like, what, what did I do? Just tell me. Don't roll your eyes at me. Tell me. Educate. Help, help me, you know, know what I did wrong. And she said, well, that's very it's triggering for people of color. And I said, wow, you know, my first reaction was, um, well, I met for a bachelorette, you know, and, and <laughs> you know, fair point, <laughs> which is really, which is really a, a, a big part of what I meant, you know. Um, they're not usually the most highly educated people, and so, um, but then I also was like. I thought about it a little bit deeper and I thought, but do I also have a bias? Isn't there a bias in this country when, when we see a person of color who speaks in a certain way and we're like, oh, wow, you're so articulate. That's racism. That's bias. And you don't even realize you're doing it. We all got to look deep and, and find these things inside of us if we're going to make that change. I appreciate you sharing that story. And, and 
to sort of build on, and then Caitlin touched on this a little bit too, which is there's such a sea change in the creators of television now that I think that the idea of representation in the writer's room and in front of the camera and behind the camera is critically important and that's really, really encouraging. But I think the other thing, and Caitlin hit on this, is that's not happening with our stakeholders at the network. It's not happening with our stakeholders at the studios, at least in network television. I can't speak for, you know, I, but it's, and that's the hard part is that we can do all we can, but then when you get the people on the other side of the phone call who understand only their perspective and sort of have a confidence in their rightness, um, it requires a change institutionally that is slowly happening. I mean, like Caitlin said, all the executives we had on, on the red line were white. There were no people on of the color. We side. actually, what's that? On the network side. On the network side, yes. And, you know, we eventually talked to them, and, and they have an incredible inclusivity department, which is where the people of color are at the moment. But on the show I'm on now, the network came in to meet us, and two of the three execs on our show are people of color. And I can see that they're starting to change, and to their credit, they're starting to change, and it's a slow change. But I think until the voices are heard reciprocally, it's going to be a bigger fight for all of us on this side, and we're going to fight it. But I think that they're starting to hear and starting to understand the importance of having the representation on their side of the conversation too. Yeah, thank God. Yeah. And I 100% agree, and I've and I have experienced the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and just in terms of addressing, you know, racial tension, we're making a show about Chicago. It's kind of impossible to make a show about Chicago with any degree of authenticity without talking without talking about the fact that it's still the most segregated metropolis in America, largely because of Mayor Daley Sr.'s redlining policies. And, you know, the CPD is responsible for, at this point, hundreds of millions of dollars in lawsuits against police officers for police brutality, largely against people of color. Laquan McDonald and Jason Van Dyke is now the watershed moment in that city's history. So knowing we probably only had one season to talk about this stuff, we had to. Otherwise, it was just going to be, I don't know liberal allyship theater, and that didn't sound particularly interesting. There, thank you for sharing, all three of you. How concerned were you with making happy endings, if at all? Not. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> Go ahead. Oh, well, 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 some of the stuff hasn't aired yet, so I, I but, but I don't, I'm not invested in, in in feel-good television if it's not really kind of the reality. And our show's also about str struggle, but with good moments, feel-good moments. But we really wanted to, to be authentic to the fact that life's not easy, that you don't come out of college and, and you have the best job in the great apartment in New York and everything's great, you know. You come out and nobody cares what you think. You think you're going to change the world and people are like, get coffee, shut up, I don't care what you think. And it's tough, and so we really wanted to um, to show that. Um, and just one more thing, because I was very glib, and I apologize. I think there's a difference between um, a happy ending and a hopeful ending. Um, you know, I hear the phrase happy ending, and it just sounds like everyone gets what they want or thinks they deserve, and I think that that's unhelpful storytelling. I also think that the inverse is unhelpful storytelling. I think that grief porn, where the worst thing possible happens and everyone suffers the most they can possibly suffer, turns people off and is equally dismissible. And I think finding a happy medium where some things happen that some characters find good and some characters find bad, and then some other things happen where the opposite is true is kind of the sweet spot. Like, you, you I want to see a story almost exclusively about how someone can go through the worst year of their lives and figure out how to move on, figure out how to thrive, figure out how to hope 
and be whole. But that is realistically a really hard journey. And I think as long as you show the realism of that journey and that hope is earned, that can be very, very productive for an audience. It's mm -hmm. great. And to the point you all have talked about who was in the writer's room, folks that you consult with, did you ever also receive feedback from directly impacted people, people who had actually gone through the criminal legal system or who had family members who were actually shot or had you know, negative, very negative experiences with law enforcement, that sort of thing? Uh, yes. Um, uh, as I said, Ava and Dr. Abdullah were incredibly generous and and uh, connected us with some families who had lost loved ones to police brutality. And they were profoundly generous enough to come in and share their experiences and their memories of their loved ones. And that was, you know, really humbling, understandably, and gave us even more motivation to really not fuck this up because there's a lot of pain that deserves reverence and deserves an accurate portrayal. You know, this the, the process of losing someone is a lifelong process. And the process of losing someone and receiving nothing that feels like justice in the face of that, I don't know how you bear that. And there are people who have to bear it every day. There are whole communities that have to bear it every day. And then again and again and again, day after day. And you just, you have to hold that first if you're, if you have the privilege of telling stories like this. I mean, here's something we learned when we spoke to these families who were incredibly brave to come and talk to us, which blew my mind is the LAPD is under no obligation to ever contact these families. They find out they lost loved ones through the news, through word of mouth. There's no official channel through which they are notified that their loved one has been killed by the cops. In fact, these families had never, ever heard from the LAPD in the entirety of the events that happened. And it was really just humbling and awful to hear that and for them to share these stories. Thank you for sharing that. Kate, Emily, question, answer. If you had the most brilliant idea. I do. What is it? I'm not telling you. <laughs> Fine. Let's say you had the most brilliant idea for a new TV show. Oh. Okay. Category. Okay. What would you do? What would be your first step? You have this idea that you dream about. You think about while you're eating, about while you're walking around, about while you're listening to this right now. And all you want to do is yell it into whatever listening device you have. I have the most brilliant idea. This is a TV show that should exist in the world. I mean, I'd probably tell you. But then I don't know. I don't. How would I get it made? You know what I would tell you to do? If you told me. I would tell you. But you're not really you. Like in this case scenario, we're okay. not us. Great. Just Way stay to be with complicated. me here. Then I would tell you you should submit to ATX Television Festivals the pitch competition. That's a great idea. Yes. That is a great idea, except I'm not eligible. Nope. You are not. Okay. So because I'm not eligible, whoever is listening to this, can you do me a favor? If you have a great idea, it's just, it's sad that I can't make my dream come true this way, but you can. You should submit to the pitch competition. But Emily, will you tell me, I mean them, how to do that? Yes. You go to atexfestival.com backslash pitch. Great. Step one, internet. Internet. And then all you have to do is submit a 90-second video pitch of your idea. It does have to be a scripted idea. Okay. No, we unscripted. are not making reality shows at this point in time. Great. Scripted. And you also have to have a five to ten page writing sample. Okay. Check. Two things. So you go, you fill out the form, you upload 
them their very specific instructions on how to do that. FAQs, I'm sure. And you have until January 17th to just mark that day on your calendar. Right. And then through a series of rounds mm-hmm. with some of our screeners and judges. Like the Blacklist and Sundance Labs and executives and such. And TV showrunners fans. and producers. Not and TV fans. People who make well, TV. But they I are mean, all TV fans. Great. Great. Then after that, we... They are our judges, select the top 10 finalists, uh-huh. and those top 10 finalists pitch live at the festival. Oh, and like they, a live studio audience. Yes, like a live studio audience. Oh, and then the winner is then mentored by one of our judges mm-hmm. or other ATX panelists, mm-hmm. and then you get to pitch live to yeah, at you, pitch you definitely pitch live. But, you pitch but then you get to pitch to our studio network partners. Oh, to maybe like see if they want to buy it? Uh, that to then make the TV show. Oh, guys, you're so lucky. I'm screwed, but <laughs> you're lucky because like I'm it's it's I'm guessing it's illegal for me. You said that, right? Yep. It's illegal for It me is to definitely do it. illegal for you to submit this way. Great. I'll um, find another way. But you guys do this. It's much simpler. But if you go to atxfestival.com backslash pitch, all the information is there. But really the only thing that you have to have is an amazing idea for a new TV show. And a writing sample. Yep. From now until when did you say? When does it end? January 17th. Great. ATXfestival.com backslash pitch. I'm just asking for a friend. We'll tell your friend. They should go and pitch now. So I definitely want to thank all of you for coming to the ACLU Fact, Fiction, and Criminal Justice panel. We certainly want to open the floor now to those of you that have questions for our esteemed panelists. So I know that there are a couple of folks that have microphones, so keep your hands raised high so we can see who wants to ask questions. I see there's three folks on this side, person here. Thank you. Thank you. Um, thank you for being here today. I was wondering, you touched upon a little bit about um, diversity and inclusivity um, perhaps on your shows, not so much on the executive side. What, how many people of color um, and African Americans do you have in the writers' room and in key positions? I was wondering, is there a percentage that you have uh, on your shows? Um, on our show, we had a really inclusive writers' room. There were eight of us. Erica and I were the only two white ladies. There was one white man, and then the rest were people of color. Um, two of whom are African-American, one of whom was uh, the highest-ranking writer besides me, Erica, and Sunil. None of our directors were white. Our crew is, I believe, over 78% uh, people of color. Um, our you know, performer ensemble is very inclusive. So for us, it was less about making sure we had predominantly black writers or black crew members or black actors and that we had an inclusive room that reflected the demographics of Chicago itself. We we also didn't want to make any particular writer feel like they were responsible only for a specific character because they happen to share the same background or ethnicity. We 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 really didn't want to tokenize. Um, so for us, it was about creating a realistic representation of the city we were depicting. Wow, that is so impressive. Great question. That is amazing. Wow. (laughs) I cannot say that we have done that as well. Um, We, um, our room is definitely inclusive and and diverse. Um, I make a real effort to make sure that we're hiring people um, to give opportunities um, to to people of color, I will say, just just send me, don't send me any white candidates for this, please, you know, um, because I, I, I want to balance. Um, 
Most of our directors are are female, at least, but um, the majority, not all. Um, and we try to be diverse, but that's amazing. Yeah, it, it's something you have to keep working on. Yep. That's a great question. I saw more hands, too, here. I think this gentleman and this woman here. Thank you. Hi. Uh, thank you all for being here. I really appreciate uh um, I just came out of Good Trouble, uh, the screening. Um, my question is um, back to what you were saying about the intersection of hopeful and happy endings. Um, sometimes in storytelling, you know, it, it's important to, to depict the reality of what's happening. And watching the end of the episode in Good Trouble, and we see what happens to Jamal's case. Um, and as a person of color, um, there's a desire to want to see, um, I don't know how to say this, but there are times in shows where the show is ahead of culture and it offers solutions and it leads up um, in a way that's not necessarily like a happy ending, but, it, but it's hopeful because it, it shows the way that things could be. Um, and I was wondering if you could speak into that. Are there times when you're like, man, I want to I wanna stay true to the reality of the people who come to us and tell us the things that they've experienced as we're trying to depict it, but is there ever a time when you're like, but could we maybe show the way that things could be in a way that's not like cheesy or um, everything works out, but in a way that offers, that, that's ahead of the culture and leads up and offers solutions? That's a great question, and it's something that, I really um, talked about with with Patrice and and you know should this be the, the you know the very rare case where I'm kind of tipping some things but where where, where there's just exactly a happy ending or 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 like you're saying where where we're leading people and society towards greater justice um, and. I think that that sometimes that is appropriate. Um, in this case, I I felt like it didn't feel authentic, and so I struggled. But it's a great question, and it's something I will definitely keep in mind going forward. And can I just add? I love what you just said, where you said it was ahead of culture. I think that that's a really elegant way to put sort of our mandate, which is to try to be ahead of culture as opposed to just reconfirming the culture that exists. Anyway, I thought that was really lovely. One thing I was also trying to do with the story is to get people... The story's not for people of color. The story is for the white audience out there to go, oh, I didn't know this was happening. I don't think a lot of people realize that... are, are totally aware that very no DAs re really will charge police officers of the crimes and that, that the only relief is to go into federal court and the limitations of that. And I, I, wanted to, I wanted those people to go, that is not fair. That's not right. You know, that should change. And I was a little bit afraid of people, of leading people to think like, oh, see, there's justice is happening out there. It's, it's all, you know, see, it's all good. So you mean that, that's the, the struggle. I would just add to Joanna's point, 85% of our prosecutors in this country are straight white men who run unopposed. So think about that when it's time to go to the ballot box as well. That's a great question. There was a question over here as well. Yeah, this is going to sound all tangential, but I've been on a jury four times in my life, and two of those times the police were the defendants. And I've always been curious, uh, do writers 
ever serve on juries, and do they take anything away from that? Because it's a fascinating experience, and it never turns out the way you expect. Um, I, I know that some of us do, because I've been in rooms where people had to take time off to do it. Uh, I've been called up for jury duty a couple of times and not chosen three times, um, whether because I showed up in my Rainbow T-Rex shirt or... <laughs> <laughs> for reasons unfamiliar to me. Um, but no, that, that is, I mean, yeah, writers are like everybody else. We get called up and we vote. And um, I, I can't imagine that it doesn't influence you because it's probably a very singular experience that I have not yet had. It's funny because I'm a real creature of the courthouse in some ways. Really, one of my best friends is she's a prosecutor in L.A. And every time I have some time off between shows, I go and I watch her try a case and I watch other cases get tried sort of for that very reason, just to sort of understand the legal process at its granular stage. Like I've been on a couple juries, none, none with sort of the import that you served. Um, but it really is eye-opening <clears throat> to see how, you know, and these are major cases. I mean, I've gone to like sex crimes case, death penalty cases, attempted murders, and to often see how and I know that you've been a defense attorney, so this is not, I'm not painting it, but like the defense attorneys are all, have all been white men and have all been horrible at their jobs. Horrible. Like honestly, and I'm, I'm stunned at this is the level of representation these human beings whose lives are on the line get. And so it's, it is very eye-opening to be a part of the legal process and to see it when it, it's the work that happens. And anyway, I, I think it's critical for us to get into those rooms and to see those things. And just by way of a follow-up question, was the jury diverse that you served on? Not really. And, and, you know, and they try very hard to make it not diverse, honestly. <laughs> I mean, it's a thing that I've talked to my friend a lot about is that she approaches jury selection with the concept of, I need a jury that's going to get me the verdict I want, as opposed to I need a jury that's going to be representative of the person that's on trial. And so there's a greater, and I've been to, you know, I've been to Compton, I've been to Torrance, I've been downtown, and the, and the you know, and the juries change. And it's interesting because people try to get trials moved where the juries are going to be more favorable. I mean, the OJ trial is a perfect example of that. Um, but no, the representation is not great. And what was the race of the defendant? Just um, Some of them, they're African-American in the death penalty, Latino in the sex crimes case, and then two white guys in the other sex crimes cases who were way guilty. Um. <laughs> on Good Trouble, you, we did a, oh, sorry, well, go Trouble, we did a story about jury selection and making a Batson challenge um, and how hard that is to, to, to say, hey, you're, you're dismissing all the uh, jurors of color. And it's it, it it's really hard to to get to prove that, right? If you can offer up a race-neutral reason why you are dismissing a juror, then it satisfies a Batson challenge. Exactly. So that is something that we are constantly fighting. I just just by way of quick follow-up, though, what was the race of the defendants in your case? Well, the first case was a federal case in which the Suffolk County, Long Island Police Department was getting sued for. Uh, racial and sexual discrimination in choosing police officers. Um, and that jury, our jury, ended up a hung jury. So the woman, it was a, a black woman uh, suing the Suffolk County Police Department. Thank you. And the second one was in Nassau County, where I live, and it was a deputy police commissioner being uh, charged with corruption. We had a very diverse jury, and we found them guilty of three of the four charges. Thank you for that. Thank you. You have a question as well? Um, yes. Yeah, so I have an, I'm a lawyer. Um, I work on the, the civil side of things, and my husband is a criminal defense attorney um, who his job has pretty much been taken away because there's been this shift to 
public defenders, and I'm not saying that all public defenders fall into the same category or any by any means, but the they didn't want to have to pay for the attorneys who wanted to help people. And so the, the thing that we talk about at night is just the general problems with the legal system. And so I know this is kind of tangential because we're dealing with criminal issues, and, but your shows are telling stories to try to make people think and try to help them. And is there a way that we can use the platforms of TV and the stories that you're trying so hard to tell and telling so well um, to change the legal system in general? Because it's the most backwards system that I think exists. And you have more of a, a somewhat more progressive media with television. How do we use that and how do all of us help and what should we be teaching people to use that and your platform to change the legal system, which is so backward regardless of you know, I get yelled at by judges for not wearing skirts into court, like just things like that. So how do we do that? Um, that's a great question. And I agree with you. So I obviously, I think it's a great question. But um, I think, you know, at the end of the day, the red line finale talked a great deal about how the system is inherently broken and that one of the least sexy things you can tell someone to do to affect change is local government. And that was one of the reasons why the election that we focused on in our series was aldermanic. It was city council. You know, it matters who's water commissioner. It matters who's on your city council. You know, it, and the legal system gets decided because of local elections. You know, judges are local elections. And, and I hope that by trying to make things that are not sexy in the media, sexy in narrative, you know, to be craven about it, is something that we as storytellers can do. Because if anyone watched the red line and went, oh man, I should care about who's the city council member for my ward, then that's a step in the right direction. It's a very, very small step. You know, I, I hope it's meaningful, it might not be, but I, I think it is incumbent on us to really hone in on what matters rather than what's inherently interesting. You know, we can make anything interesting. That's our job as artists, but you know, we have to take action to choose to make something inherently uninteresting interesting. And then I will add to that <clears throat> the show that I'm on now, which is this new show called All Rise, which should hopefully give you some hope. Um, it is about the LA courthouse, and it is the main character is an African-American woman who becomes a judge from having been a prosecutor. And the cast is seven people. It's five people of color. It's four women, one white guy. And so our goal is to do exactly what you're talking about, which is what happens when you have people who believe who have faith in the system, but the system's not working. Um, you know, sort of in that same way we talk about the West Wing. They had faith in politics, but they had to figure out how to work within the system that exists because it is so fundamentally broken. It is such a bedrock of what our nation was theoretically founded on, but it is not working. Um, and so these are exactly the conversations we're having every single day. And they're, they're tough because there's no easy solution, but it requires a kind of hopeful intention in approaching it at the at the, you know, because the one thing we keep saying is to check the premise, you know, to don't just take the question and then start answering the question, question the question. And that's what we're really looking at when we do this show. I think there was a question back here as well. And then I, this gentleman also has been yes, waiting. Sir. Yep. Go ahead. Hi, thank you for doing the panel. Um, my question is, so you guys all work in drama and I was wondering, do you guys think these issues can be addressed in comedy without losing you know, the authenticity. Um, and do you guys have shows in, like comedy shows in mind where you think they do do that? I think absolutely comedy can do it. And I think, I mean, I think <clears throat> to the credit of shows like Atlanta or um, Master of None, I mean, network 
I must admit I'm not super familiar with the network comedies and I don't know how much they're trying to do it, but I think shows like that are starting to change the way a comedy is approached because they're not, you know, hitting the punchlines all the time, but definitely they're sort of in a comedic bent, but I think those are having all of those conversations and sometimes better than us dramas are doing it. Yeah, I mean, I think satire is one of the greatest tools we have. I just happen to not be good at it. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I don't think there's a better Kafka-esque portrait of what's been happening in our country than Veep. And I, you know, that's one of the funniest shows that's ever been. I really wish that I could write that. Sadly, I cannot. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm a creature of drama. It's what comes naturally. I think my dream show would be a reboot of Murder, She Wrote. Um, but <laughs> still with Angela Lansbury. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, of course, of course comedy can do it. I, you know, there's just certain people who can do it and certain people who can't. Great question, and this will be our final question. Thank you. Mr. DR, I thought you made a break. Can you move the mic a little closer to your mouth oh, so we can I'm all sorry. hear you? Forgive me. Perhaps it's not on. Perhaps I could do without. There we go. There you go. There you go. <laughs> I thought you made a very wonderful point about bias and about institutional bias in particular. I recall you spoke of Perry Mason. There was also a Sergeant Joe Friday balancing the situation. We have had a dramatic change in political administrations. We find more and more people seem to be gravitating towards shows like Cops. What can be done to change the institutional bias the favors shows like cops and law and order. The, go ahead. the question is to Mr. Nyer, what, given our institutional bias and the bent towards law enforcement shows, what can be done to balance that or change that? And, and I think it's a great question. And, and not to, this is not meant to sound clear, but I think the answer is like this. And, and all of you being here today, and thank you all for coming today. I mean, I think the answer is the ACLU, and is all of us starting to try? I mean, I will say what's interesting about the institutions is, as opposed to television shows where shows get picked up and canceled and you get a chance to sort of recreate a creative heart year to year, the networks often are people who have been there for 15, 20 years. And so there's also an element to which, and this is gonna sound awful, but we gotta wait it out a little bit um, because, because the people who are coming up at all the levels, and even at the networks and the studios, these are people who give a shit in a way that they're not allowed to yet with the voices that they have, but they're starting to have the voices. And so I am in the same way that Caitlin said, it's not a happy ending of the story right now, but it's a hopeful place that we find ourselves at because more and more people I speak to, both inside and outside this industry, realize the importance of having a voice and telling these stories. Like I ran a show called Revenge for a couple of years and it was, uh, thank you. Right, yeah. I'm, I'm about to kind of shit on it. Um, but, uh, but like I loved it, but I, I kind of realized after I did it that I worked and I made 88 hours of a show about rich white people being awful to each other so they could be happy. Um, and look at our president. And so it's, it's, it's that that I sort of ingested to think, I had a great time making it. I'm proud of the show. I'm proud of the work we did, but I'm not proud of the message it put forth for 89 hours worth of television. And so it's also people like me realizing just getting a job and doing a job is not sufficient anymore. And that they have to be able to answer to my wife and my kids and my friends and my family and the community and the millions of people who watch TV why it is I'm doing what I'm doing. And I will say tons of people share this kind of mandate right now. And so 
I agree with you, and I hope that what we're doing right now, and I hope that what many, many other people are doing at all levels of this industry, are slowly pushing this change forward, because it doesn't happen quickly, but I think it is happening. When you talk about the show Cops, you know, there's some, there are shows out there that Stars has some wonderful documentary shows. America to Me is an amazing show. Um, also, um, there's, there's another show about, uh, the, the, the boys in football and like, there are, there are those shows. I don't know how to make them as popular as, as cops, but I think part of it is in these people, in the networks programming shows that will help with equity and, and say, I, you know, I don't think I'm going to make that show. I'm not going to put that show on that sort of makes, maybe idealizes something that we don't want. You know, I mean, the problem is, is that when it comes to money, that seems to be all that matters in this country. Anything goes, and that's too bad. Right. And also, just to, sorry, to quickly answer your question, and your question over there about comedy is a thing to mention, is like Chuck Lorre, who is the, you know, Mr. Comedy, who's created all the most successful comedies, his new show on CBS this year is about an interracial relationship. And so it shows that even the people who are the institution are starting to understand the importance of telling these stories. So I think it's really encouraging. Yeah, and I just want to give one more really unsexy answer, which is statistics. Um, you know, the, the four major networks, NBC, ABC, Fox, CBS, are actually dying out. You know, the platform is now streaming. You know, the future is streaming. It's not just going to be the way it was in the 60s, 70s, 80s, where you had four to five choices and then a smattering of cable channels. And as the cultural needle keeps getting pushed by these platforms with a huge variety of programming, the networks have to answer that or die. And I think that that's really the thing that pushes it forward. And it is cynical. It is craven. It's exactly what Joanna said. And I'm, you know, I'm lucky enough to have a friend who works in the algorithm department at Netflix, and they literally make decisions about what programming they're going to do based on a value that's assigned to every single person on IMDb and what their value might be over the course of five years. And they have formulas to determine this stuff. And more and more, the formula is not shows like Cops. Because if Netflix is in everybody's house, not everybody is a white person who likes the narrative that cops tells them. And the networks will eventually have to answer that, have to create representation, or drown. You know, the red line is not coming back, but we still got four million people to tune in opposite the last four episodes of Game of Thrones, which for CBS was a really low rating, but for any cable network or streaming network is huge numbers. So it's just, the model is changing, the numbers are changing, the nature of math is changing. And, and for me, I take tremendous comfort in math. <laughs> I would say that the criminal legal system is broken, but there's an argument to be made that it is actually operating as designed. And so these shows are helping to transform our legal system, and we appreciate that. I want to thank each and every one of you for joining the ACLU's Fact, Fiction, and Criminal Justice panel discussion. Please thank our panelists, and thank you for coming. The TV Campfire is produced by Caitlin McFarland, Emily Gibson, and A.J. Myers, along with our audio partners, Five Ohm Productions. Mark your calendars. ATX TV Festival Season 9 is happening June 4th through 7th, 2020 in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit atxfestival.com and follow us on social media at ATX Festival. And be sure to check out our episode notes for a very special discount 
on badges exclusive to the TV Campfire podcast listeners. As always, please rate, subscribe, and share this podcast. And stay tuned for even more exclusive releases each week.